is Bloomberg Surveillance. I've been thinking the 10 years in a one and a half, two and a half trading band, and that's where we've been, and I think that's where we're going to stay. I think there's a growing sentiment that maybe negative rates aren't all that they were supposed to be in terms of stimulating growth and inflation. A precondition for a bear market is not necessarily a recession. Bear markets can occur even if the U.S. fails to fall into recession. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keene, Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide. Good morning, United Kingdom. We're going to touch on Brexit, which has moved all the way to a debate of some type in Shanghai at the G20 meetings as well. Jamie Murray to join us here in a moment from Bloomberg uh, Economics and Bloomberg Intelligence. Futures of eight, now futures up 73. Record low yield in the German five-year. The two-year to three digits. We do yields to three or four digits when it matters. The German two-year, negative 0.551. That's really close to a record low. I don't believe we're there, but we're getting there. Maybe Michael McKee has wisdom on that. Bloomberg Surveillance, brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory to keep your business on top of issues. In the evolving renewable energy market, it takes dedicated industry experts like Cone Resnick. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. We thank Cone Resnick for their uh, uh, support. Mike, I'm doing my taxes this weekend. The incense came in from Amazon. You know, <laughs> fill the room with incense and see what we can and, do. And uh, put on some uh, spa music. and Yeah, exactly. Um, are you going to release your tax returns to the public? Uh, yes. I, what is the story <laughs> on that? Mr. Trump is not, is that? Uh, he's so far making excuses for doing it. It, it came, Mitt Romney, of all people, uh, brought, brought it up as something that Donald Can I ask a dumb question? Does he have to, or is it an option? No, he doesn't have to. It's doesn't an have option. Okay. Uh, Mr. Romney suggested there might be something hidden in there, like uh, much lower income than uh, Mr. Trump claims. Okay. Uh, J.B. Murray with us as we look at uh, uh, global economics. He runs economics for so much of Bloomberg Economics and Bloomberg Intelligence. Jamie, I don't even know where to start, but I guess we start with a Brexit update. What will you listen for this weekend and into next week in the U.K. rhetoric on an exit from Europe? I think the thing to recognize is we're, we're quite a long way from a vote here. The vote's going to be 23rd of June. There's going to be a lot of campaigning over the next, uh, next month or two. Um, so there's, there's a long way to run. So I wouldn't attach too much weight to any particular comments from politicians just yet. There's, I'd say there's, there's, there's plenty of time. Well, what's the argument that the uh, pro-EU side is going to make? Well, I think there's a, a, a general feeling that the uh, the UK could could benefit from being outside the union from trade ties and the reduction in the burden of regulation from from Europe. Uh, I think that the, the the trouble with those arguments is that there's no guarantees that if Britain leaves, it'll be able to make up for the beneficial trade ties it has with the EU. And it's not clear that the legislation that is inflicted on the UK by Europe is actually that unpalatable. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the case is, is, is hard to make in, in, in our view. The hard to make a case for leaving. Yeah, it's, it's, it's harder to. The, the downside risks 
I mean, it's, it is kind of a leap into the unknown, as, as politicians say. The downside risks are probably bigger than the upside risks are. And you've also, compounding mm-hmm. like the, the longer-term view, you've got this, this possibility that there's going to be some significant short-term disruption. I mean, we've done some modeling, and we've run some shocks through our, through our models. We've done a, a 10% exchange rate shock. We've done 100 basis points on interbank lending and a confidence shock to demand, so people feeling less comfortable, spending less. And we think that could push inflation up significantly. We think growth would be far slower in the near term. And we think the next uh, move to interest rates would be a cut to zero if Britain left the union. The Economist a couple days ago, Jamie, I I assume you saw it, made a splash in trying to calculate the cost in and out of Brexit. Do you, with all your good research, do you have a number that that London and the United Kingdom gains or loses off of the transaction of leaving the EU? We have we have some numbers. So we've got that short term impact, which uh, which is temporary. That wouldn't that wouldn't last forever. But the medium term impact we think would be relatively large. So. Um, it's unclear exactly what post-Brexit arrangements would look like, but assuming that the, that the government is able to clamp down on migration flows, that would make the economy smaller by about 1% by 2020. If uh, the trade arrangements we have with the EU aren't replicated or made better by leaving, uh, then you're looking at another 2% of GDP. So the economy could be 3% of GDP smaller in the medium term. Not per year, but just, just over, uh, overall. Yeah, so the economy, economic output per year would be lower by 3% for the rest of time relative to what it would otherwise have been. What about uh, the um, impact internally uh, within uh, Great Britain? Uh, they lose some of the trade aspects, but how much of the economy is dependent on that? Would people be better off um, in terms of uh, companies that would no longer be under um, the control of Brussels in terms of the, 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 the rules and regulations for the economy? I mean, it's, it's hard to think of, of specific examples where interference from Europe really produces negative outcomes for British business. Things like the Working Time Directive, for example, which prevent British workers from working more than, I think it's about 38 hours a week, um, those things are generally thought to be good, both by workers and by, by businesses. And that's probably one of the, the bigger intrusions into, uh, into British life from the EU. Um, so I, my, my feeling is that the, the leaving, leaving that regulation behind isn't really a solution. And if you think about the, uh, say, the banking sector, for example, leaving the EU is very unlikely to prompt a big relaxation of rules on, on, on banks in the UK. It's not like there's some sort of sunny upland for British banks where they no longer have to be regulated at all. The Bank of England is just as, as tight in regulation, if not yeah. tighter, than Europe. So, so what are the benefits to leaving the EU? You've cited a lot of benefits or analysis to suggest there are benefits to staying within this experiment. What's the upside for leaving? The upside to leaving is that some hope that trade flows with the rest of the world that's expanding quite fast, like China, the emerging market, would be bigger because we could negotiate bilateral trade agreements with them that we cannot do right. independently of the EU. And I think that's the, the biggest economic sort of uh, benefit to the, to the UK. Those who are worried about the level of migration for non-economic reasons – for them, that too could be a benefit. So uh, people seeing okay. lower migration as a result of leaving. I'm fascinated. I'm also want to inform folks on Jamie's good answer, which didn't mention Scotland. 
How do you, you know, and I understand you're not doing this from a political angle, but do you just presume that if Brexit occurs, that the real issue is a Scottish overlay? So I think the, the, I think leaving would almost, would almost certainly trigger another referendum in Scotland on the membership of the union, the UK. Um, when that would happen, I think it'd probably be a year or two once the, yeah, all the post EU okay. negotiations are complete. Because you really need to know what's going to be in place afterwards before Scotland can make a decision about the, about its own membership of the UK. So I think that's, that would be quite a long way off. But yes, it would be a, a risk and we know, we've, we know what the consequences of, of breaking yeah. up the UK are already. Well, uh, we were just talking uh, with a couple of guests who said, uh, yes, uh, Mr. Osborne and uh, Mr. Cameron got concessions from the EU, but they're hard to explain. Can you put into words for us what what they're going to try to sell out of the deal? Well, so the the, the only... Um, so you've got, you've got a few few things. Some sort of are more political, to others more sort of policy economic. Uh, one of the one of the concessions was that they were, we're no longer going to be subject to the ever closer union part of the agreement with the EU. Um, what that means is kind of fuzzy. Uh, who knows whether the degree to which the European Union was going closer anyway? It's, it's hard to it's hard to sell that, but he will highlight it as, uh, as something he's brought home. Um, and the other one is uh, changes to, to benefits. So. He's managed to secure a break on the payment of in-work benefits. That's um, credits you get for, well, basically you pay lower taxes um, because you are working lower, a few, a few hours a week. Um, that benefit, that, that in-work benefit, would no longer be payable to recent migrants. Uh, and uh, the idea is that dissuades them from coming. The trouble is that it probably won't, because most people come here to work anyway. The, in, the income differential is very wide already, and even if you make these tweaks to the, um, to the pe- payment of benefits, the incentive to come to Britain is still quite strong. Um, so my guess is that it wouldn't have an enormous influence on migration, which is what it's intended to address. Jamie, thank you so much. Jamie Murray is a... Uh uh, of Bloomberg Intelligence and Bloomberg Economics this morning. A good briefing there on Brexit. As Jamie said at the beginning, it's, it's out there in June, but Mike, I thought it was really a nuanced week of Brexit debate. Yeah. I was really taken back somewhere I saw this morning. I'm sorry, folks, I can't cite it, uh, of, of a real interest in having somehow Brexit creep into the communique in Shanghai. I find that almost unimaginable. Yeah, maybe a little early for that. Yeah, uh, that kind of thing. I, I don't know that they would get involved in yeah, exactly. choosing sides. Yeah, uh, but it is going to be a fascinating couple of months with Brexit, with China, with oil, with uh, the elections. Um, lot to lot for the G20 to keep their <clears throat> eyes on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, currency markets. Yen near 113, 112.97, fractionally stronger yen uh, this morning. Uh, Sterling, 139.67. Now let's talk to John Tucker and get the latest world and national headlines. John? Well, Tom and Michael, the Republican presidential candidates, going their separate ways today after a knockdown dragout debate that featured name-calling, insults, and finger-pointing. The U.S. military expanding the war on Islamic State group. With an assault on the Internet, U.S. officials say the newly launched aggressive campaign of cyber attacks targets the group's abilities to use social media and the Internet. President Obama heads to Florida today defending the results of the massive economic stimulus bill he signed early in his first term. And to keep prices stable and to avoid a glut, the cartel is keeping a lid on production. OPEC and oil? 
No, maple syrup. The Federation of Quebec maple syrup producers accounts for 71% of world supply. They are strictly limiting how much can be extracted and sold this season. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. You've been a font of news wisdom this week. A font. (sighs) I believe there are different grades as well, like oil, of maple syrup. Okay, very good. On the Maple Syrup Watch, Bloomberg Surveillance. The news update brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4Matic all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. stock index futures are rising this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. U.S. futures have paired some of their gains since the last time we spoke. Dow futures currently higher by 79 points. S&P's gained nine and Nasdaq futures rise by 26. At one point, Dow futures were up 148 points. European markets have also paired their gains. Germany is now trading higher by 1.5%. On the U.S. economic front at 8.30, GDP and core PCE, and at 10 o'clock, personal income and Michigan sentiment. After the Bellis Night gap year, just EPS view trailed estimates. Herbalife said in talks with the FTC on potential resolution. Intuit and Kraft Heinz beat, and Monster Beverage Q4 revenue was below estimates. Regarding earnings today, Rowan and Sotheby's beat, and Foot Locker Q4 just EPS and comp sales estimates. In other news, Hilton has spin off its real estate and timeshare businesses. Finally, some of your key Wall Street upgrades and downgrades. Monster Beverage raised to buy at CLSA. Gold Corp cut to sell at Deutsche Bank. Kraft Heinz raised to overweight at J.P. Morgan. Restoration Hardware raised to strong buy at Raymond James. And finally, Colgate Palmov cut to neutral over at Stern AG. Live from the first of breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? All right, thanks, Bill. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K-Go. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Factor-based strategies can help investors focus on high quality, low volatility, and more. Learn more at Invesco.com slash High conviction. Uh, Michael McKee on air this morning because she couldn't get out of bed. She says up most of the night partying over Chris Kreider's third period goal as the Rangers <laughs> beat the St. Louis Blues. We welcome Scarlet Flu. The, ra- the, flu the, the Rangers are doing better, right? They're doing better, but I'd like to see more consistency. The, there are too many close games, and, mm-hmm. you know, for every two games they get ahead, there's one game where they fall, fall apart completely. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you worldwide, Scarlet Food joining us, the star of stage and screen, uh, and really watch you the Rangers do better than good, except against, uh, the, the out front Washington oh, Capitals. Christopher, Ro- me. yes, Christopher Rowland, uh, is with FBR looking at Apple. Christopher, good morning. Good morning. Now, I, I, I want to get through the litigation thing quickly. It sort of bores me because I guess we're going to go, we're going to go. The major question to me, is, is there any immediate analysis of what the debate with the government would do with Apple to their revenues, to their income, to their earnings, and to their share price? Yeah, so it, there's nothing concrete that we can point to right now. But I, I think the ramifications, particularly internationally, uh, could be quite severe. 
Can you elaborate? Yeah, sure. So if the if this vacate if they decide to not vacate this court order here, uh, and if they go ahead and they put this back door in, what that does is it allows other international governments to go to Apple and say, "Look, you've already created this back door. Now we want it." So this could be, you know, governments from Saudi Arabia, or this could be governments from China. And of course, there's information, there are dissidents in, in these countries, uh, and, and it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. It's not a step that Apple would take. Mm -hmm. uh, so they could potentially block the sale mm -hmm. of products uh, unless this back door is given to each and every government, and that's not a step that Apple would be willing to take. So Tim Cook's posturing is more because of what it represents to other foreign governments, other foreign markets. I think this is one sort of knock-on effect that I think is most financially detrimental um, as opposed to just a privacy act, yes. Within the financials in the time that we've got left to do, and we'll have you on for a longer bout here in a bit, with the new earnings report, do you just presume that there will be the ginormous mother of all share buyback dividend increase announcements? Uh, it's it's not clear yet. It, it really is not clear yet. Apple's having uh, some some challenges in terms of growth. Uh, I think that, that that they're maybe now more than ever they want to keep a little bit of dry powder here to perhaps to move into other markets. So um, so it's not clear exactly what they're going Would to do. Would that mean by Twitter? I, I I don't think Twitter would be uh, the number one goal for them. No. What is? You know, there is some discussion about something to do in autos. Uh, that could be a potential area of focus for them, um, you know, moving beyond just consumer electronics. So you're talking more about services and that recurring revenue aspect, which has kind of eluded them and has contributed to the, the discount on their valuation. Absolutely, yep. So this being the case, Tim Cook is fighting this PR war on the one hand. What is his operational staff most obsessed with right now? What are they working on that they must get done by the end of the year? Yeah, so, um, you know, the real problem that Apple's running into right now is declining iPhone numbers because the replacement rate or, 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 or time, uh, the cycle that it takes for a consumer to buy a phone is increasing. And in North America, we've gone from a little over two years to two and a half and approaching three years. And this is really, really hurting their growth rate. What they need to do is create a significant amount of innovation in the iPhone 7 that will make this extending cycle right. actually contract. When that happens, you'll get growth again. And, Tom, there's a lot of talk that Apple in March typically releases new products, and there's supposed to be some mid-sized iPad. I guess that means bigger than the mini iPad, smaller than the regular iPad? Uh, there's, there is a iPad 3 coming. There's also, uh, there's also a yeah. smaller iPhone uh, as well. Within the ch quickly here, within the chit-chat, do you see the new phone providing the unit growth necessary? The, the, that question is still to be answered, and the, I agree. the, the, the yeah. answer the answer lies in the level of innovation and the new features that are coming, and we only know of a few of them thus far. I, I agree. There's a mystery to it, and this, of course, is, is uh, most shops maintain huge optimism. Uh, FBR with an outperform 
and $120 price target on Apple. Christopher Rowland with us. We'll have him back for a more extended discussion here. Somehow I think we'll be doing this. Scarlett, I, I got a film, uh, a photo from a family member. On your fancy, iPhone, of on course. On a fancy new phone. It was shocking how much better. Better than the, any, any camera, light, right? Oh, that's unreal. Unreal, the light coverage. Scarlett Fu with us. This, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. I can't even talk. I'm so it's dazzled. That's what happened. It's Scarlet Fu is here. Stay with us. Coming up on the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the Own the Adventure sales event. Land Rover, above and beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Scarlett Fu here with Tom Keen. Economic indicators are brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RAA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Let's check in now with Vinny Del Judice for the latest economic indicators. Vinny? Good morning, Scarlett. We have figures on GDP, revised fourth quarter GDP, stronger than forecast, an increase of 1% in the fourth quarter. Going into the report, economists had anticipated a 0.4% increase. The prior number, the prior estimate by the government was 0.7. So GDP topping forecasts up 1%. Also, some advanced trade, a merchandise trade deficit January. It widened to $62.2 billion from roughly 61.5 in December. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, Let's go back to New York. Uh, Vinny, thanks so much. Markets move on this. Uh, yields up four. Totally risk on. Two-year yield explodes up three basis points, 0.78. Uh, and with some curve steepening as well. We're not back out over 100 beeps, but uh, certainly a constructive field of that. With futures up 12. Dow futures up 107. Lindsay Piega with us with Stiefel Nicholas. Uh, Lindsay, you got to help me here. All in all, I think it's been a week of very good economic data or at least flat or up feel like we just see with a 1% statistic. Um, does this adjust the Fed discussion, not immediately, but in the coming weeks? It really doesn't change the storyline for the U.S. economy, knowing that we've now slowed for back-to-back quarters from that peak of activity in the second quarter. But even a small three-tenths upside revision does reinforce the Fed's thesis that the economy is still on moderate footing. And remember, against the backdrop of stronger inflation data, as we heard from Esther George yesterday, there's still a lot of pressure on the Fed to give us that second rate increase near term. Scarlett, what I would suggest is Lindsay nails it with the word reinforce. Right. I I think that just totally captures the weak's tone. Uh, We should also mention that uh, the consensus estimate here for GDP was for four-tenths of 1%, so a a slower pace of growth. And in getting that 1% advance, we not only defied expectations, but we built on the original original report, Tom. Lindsay, stay to the consumer here. A little light personal consumption comes in, but still, is it led as always by 68, 70% of the economy? Yeah, we see consumption revised down slightly from 2.2 to 2%, but again, we're, we're really splitting hairs there. We know the consumer began to tighten their purse strings at the end of the year. 
The good news is the retail data does seem to be a bit stronger as we round it out into the new year. But from the Fed's point of view, again, this just uh, solidifies the idea that the consumer is still on moderate footing, hopefully gaining momentum as we start to see improvement in that wage component. Into your reinforcing discussion on reinforce, reinforce how I mean, I, I hate the parlor game, folks, but it actually works here. How many rate rises this year? Are you migrating back to three or four? We have not deviated. We're still looking for three rate increases because, remember, it's not about the lack of improvement that we've seen in the data. It's about the Fed's expectations. Yeah. And the data has not materially deteriorated, and so that has not, in our opinion, uh, adjusted downward the Fed's expectations for growth two to three years hence. Remember, they want to get out ahead of inflation, and so they're going to have to begin to uh, continue excuse me, continue to give us gradual rate increases along the way. I'm really interested, Scarlett, in the Gloom Crew essays this weekend. Mm -hmm. How do they write about Gloom? given the sum of data we've seen well, this week. Well, they could point, for instance, to this GDP report, which indicates that the fourth quarter uh, expanded <clears throat> faster than initially estimated because of a higher value of business inventories. And at the same time, they yeah, could also okay. point to wages and salaries rising $83.3 billion, which was revised down from the $89.2 billion initially yeah. reported. Uh, well, how do you, Lindsay, how do you factor in export dynamics into Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX? I mean, do you just forget about it? Or is that valid? No, it it certainly is valid. And one of the components that you see with a significant revision is imports. Now, of course, this will be a net positive to the GDP calculation when you're talking about importing less from abroad. But it does speak to the fact that the consumer is still on very moderate footing. If the U.S. consumer was as strong as I think the Fed would have us believe, you would have seen import growth remain positive through the end of the year. But that's now been revised down from 1.1 to negative. And as Tom, as you mentioned, we see selling in the two-year with the yield spiking up to 75 basis points, 75.39 to be exact. Lindsay, what does this do to all the conversation about a recession? we're, We're bound for recession. There's a recession looming. Does this take that off the table? I don't know if it takes it off the table for those that have uh, initiated that discussion, but I think it certainly gives us another data point to suggest, no, the economy is not falling off the table, still tepid, mind you. Remember, we still can't gain momentum beyond this stagnant 2% growth range, but I think it does alleviate some of the talking points for the recessionary uh, possibility near term. In our final minute with Lindsay, we go to where few fail to tread with fear, we look at real final sales. What is real final sales? Well, real final sales is essentially looking at the growth rates, less inventories. We want to take out that very volatile inventory cycle. And what we see is that uh, real final sales were actually unchanged in this report. So essentially we shifted around some of the growth uh, from category to category, but when we strip out that volatile inventory cycle, Real final sales unchanged at 1.2% at the end of the year. So, again, reiterating the story that uh, the U.S. economy did lose momentum at the end of the year, but still very much on positive uh, legs. Lindsay Piazza with uh, Stiefel Nicholas. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Scarlett, I'm looking for the nominal GDP uh, number here in the you know, the first table that comes out, still looking for it. But, uh, you know, at the end of the, t- at the end of the day, the sub 4% nominal GDP gets your attention. We'll Absolutely. The core PCE in. number will also get the Fed's attention. That's the measure that they track most closely for inflation. And that yeah. increased 1.3%, a little bit faster than the initial 1.2% that was yeah. reported earlier. I think I got a run rate of current GDP, which is uh, economic talk for nominal 
of 2.0%. That certainly doesn't get it done. Futures up 13. This hour of surveillance is brought to you by Volvo Cars White Plains. Visit volvocarswhiteplains.com. John Tucker has our news. John? And uh, Scarlett and Tom Marco Rubio unleashing a campaign's worth of harsh criticism on Donald Trump in the final Republican debate before Tuesday's crucial primaries. The problem may be that it uh, took ten debates and three Trump victories to get Rubio fired up. United Nations Security Council this weekend considers tougher sanctions on North Korea and at curtailing the regime's nuclear ambitions after the country conducted a fourth nuclear test at rocket launch earlier this year. U.S. officials say the Pentagon has launched a newly aggressive campaign of cyber attacks against Islamic State militants. It's a targeted effort to erode the group's abilities to use social media and the Internet. And yes, Oscar weekend, uh, Tom, New Regency Productions could score a rare three-peat at the 88th Academy Awards Sunday with a win for The Revenant, the frontier drama with Leo DiCaprio. The company, along with the distributor 20th Century Fox, already holds the last two Best Picture Oscars with Birdman in 2015 and 12 Years a Slave from 2014. Haven't seen any of them. Later in our hour here, we've got 90 minutes left of Bloomberg Surveillance. We will speak with surveillance celebrity lodestone Scarlett Foo <laughs> about this. John Tucker, thank you so much. Uh, Scarlett, we have sports. We do. It is time now for the Ray Katina Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. All right, Scarlett, all three local hockey teams were on the road last night. Rangers won 2-1 in St. Louis. They were coming off a loss to New Jersey. They still have not had back-to-back losses since mid-December. Henrik Lundqvist made 35 saves, became the third goalie in NHL history to win 30 or more games in at least 10 seasons. As to the Devils, lost badly at Columbus 6-1. Nick Foligno had the hat trick for the Blue Jackets in Calgary. The Islanders, Thomas Hickey scored third period to tie the game and then late in overtime. Tavares pulling to the right. is over the Calgary line. Being chased by Monaghan. Nice turn on control. Centers in front and Bailey scores! Nice play by Tavares to Bailey and the Islanders rally here with a victory. Through the one at Calgary, their third straight win. The Nets' second stop on this club record nine-game road trip, a 116-106 win at Phoenix, who's lost 13 in a row. Nets made news earlier, releasing Joe Johnson, who in his four seasons made a lot of money, $25 million this year, hit several game-winning shots. The Nets never won a playoff series with him, and certainly won't this year. Johnson can now join another team. Many, seem, many teams are interested. College hoops went for Seton Hall, could go a long way towards Getting the Pirates into the NCAA, 70-52 over Providence. A week after beating DePaul, they had its first Big East win. St. John's lost at DePaul, 83-75. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stitch. John, thank you so much. Scarlett, we mentioned a range. Is it, is it getting to be the fun time of hockey? I mean, it's, it's getting to be... The nerve-wracking part the of nerve-wracking. hockey. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually had not realized that the Rangers had not lost back-to-back losses. It felt like they had for a while because their emotions go up mm-hmm. and down so much. Remember that game that we went to against the Canadians, the one yes. that began the awful streak? Yes, we sat. Our people made us sit in two different parts of Madison Square. Yeah, it would have caused too much of a commotion if we were together, right? Yes, if we'd been together, it would have, you know, Lundquist would have been unhappy. He wouldn't have been able to concentrate. Well, as it turns out, he wasn't able to concentrate <laughs> because they lost really badly. He, he, they lost really badly. It was an ugly uh, game. Right now, a good market. Futures up 14, Dow Futures up 130. Scarlet Foo and Tom Keen on a Friday. Bloomberg Surveillance. 
The sports report was brought to you by Ray Katina Auto Group. Everyone deserves to drive a Mercedes-Benz from Ray Katina. Make it happen at Ray Katina Motor Car in Edison, Ray Katina of Union, and the new Ray Katina of Freehold. Or go to RayKatina.com. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. The U.S. economy unexpectedly expanded at a faster pace in the fourth quarter than initially estimated, reflecting a higher value of business inventories. Gross domestic product, the value of all goods and services produced, grew at a 1% annualized rate, compared with an initial estimate of 7 tenths percent, and consumer spending was revised lower. U.S. stock index futures remained higher following that report, with S&P E-mini futures up 14 points, Dow E-mini futures up 122, and NASDAQ E-mini futures up 37. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. DAX in Germany is up 2%. Ten-year Treasury down 11.30 seconds. The yield 1.75%. NYMEX crude oil up 3.4% or $1.11 to 34.17 a barrel. COMEX gold down 6 tenths percent or $7.90 to 12.31 an ounce. The euro, $1.0993. The yen, 113.25. Euro area inflation looks to be cooling more than expected, with prices in three of the region's four largest economies missing estimates and strengthening the case for an expansion of the European Central Bank's monetary stimulus in March. Consumer prices slid in Germany, France, and Spain in the year to February. Figures show today. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Scarlett. Karen, uh, thank you so much. It is 8.48 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Ramesh Panuru, a columnist for Bloomberg View. As Britain prepares to vote on leaving the European Union, President Obama is reportedly considering repeating his advice that it stay in. Silence is a better idea. Britain is our closest ally among the European powers, and so it is often argued that its influence on the EU helps us. But it's up to the British to determine what relationship with Europe maximizes their influence in the world. We have an interest in that question, but it's not as great as theirs. If they think the EU sets back their interests, we can't reasonably ask them to stay because it suits us. The Obama administration has hinted that we might not have friendly trade relations with a post-EU Britain. Carrying through that threat would be harmful to us and serve no purpose, which means it's not a credible threat. What we should tell the British is that we trust them to make their own decision and we'll have a strong relationship with them either way. I'm Ramesh Panuru. For more View, please go to BloombergView.com or View Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Tom Keenan, Scarlett Fu with us today. Michael McKee on assignment. Scarlett has decided to step in. Scarlett, earlier in the week, we saw the drop in the British pound. We come back to a 139.63, but on a Monday ago, five days ago, right. if we'd said it was at a 139.63, that would have been headline um, making and and I guess we stagger around to June and Brexit and all that, but it really folds into the G20 meeting, where the presumption interview after interview is nothing's going to happen. I don't buy it. Well, here's where I'm, I'm a little confused because people came into this meeting thinking that there would be some kind of grand proclamation or there would be some uh, work done where they might agree to come together and say devalue the yuan once and for all and get rid of this drip drab policy, or not even policy, approach to weakening the UN. Then the fact that Jack Lou came out on Bloomberg Television and told our David Weston that uh, that kind of thing is not in the offing had everyone worried. Uh, to what, why, yeah. why would everyone think that the G20 
separate members, everyone has their own interest, would be yeah. able to come together and come and, come with any agreement. And Virginia Mazin have nailed this this morning with her experience at Schroeder's and PIMCO. She was on uh, a surveillance on television. She's a portfolio manager with a bigger, broader 60,000-foot view. And Ms. Mazin have made clear what is needed if you're going to get drama mm-hmm. is level of crisis. And we're just not, we're not there. there. Yeah. Willem Bowder at Citigroup is adamant that without financial instability, institutions are not going to come to the rescue and they're not going to save the day. And in fact, and his that's shop. Where we are that's where we are right now. And in fact, his shop only estimates 50 percent chance of a recession. So you're saying 50 50. Anything could happen at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I just find it. Into the weekend, and of course, we'll all do our reading uh, over the weekend, uh, and, and of course, as we go to Super Tuesday uh, as well. But the, the basic idea of what didn't happen this week is just as important as the news that we saw. Absolutely. What, didn't, what didn't happen this week were institutions riding to the rescue with the Jack Lou interview. There's a distinct lack of urgency heading into this G20. And, and I would say a distinct lack of urgency heading into March. And <clears throat> to the gloom crew's point, you know, you see this out on the different articles that people very cautious and very upset feel. They're sort of waiting for something in March. And that waiting has to come mm-hmm. from action, from crisis. And mm-hmm. the jump moves for now aren't there. I'll give you one exception, though. I'm looking at the Bloomberg folks. It's the red one. I put the photo out before on social. The basic idea of the entire screen is complacent, oil oil up a dollar twenty two, except the German two year negative point five five one shows that angst. For American GDP analysis, John Herman with Mitsubishi. John what was the thing you gleaned out of this I- update? Okay, so the update what it what it told us a couple of you know a couple of important things. One is uh we didn't we, we were thinking that we were gonna go through more of an inventory correction right. in the second half of last year and we really didn't get it. So we still kinda of have that overhanging a little bit first quarter or so. But when we when <clears> we move past that's all very, very temporary, transitory and stuff like that. When we move past that uh, you know, what we're seeing is basically seeing a pretty decent residential construction sector, personal consumer. I mean, we're not we're not back in the 90s or last decade or the 80s, but, you know, we're running at that 2% clip right. of the consumer, which is, you know, relatively good. Uh, we keep maintaining that. Business spending a touch softer on the revisions, but, you know, nothing outlandish. So what, what, it, all trans, what it all transforms is to people had gotten too pessimistic. You know, what they did was uh, – market participants. They, they said, gee, you know, the economy is really going to underperform this year. Inflation is really going to underperform and so on. But what's <laughs> happening is the data, the actual data rolling in is not quite as bad okay. as the sentiment. So they priced just, that out, and that was, like, you know, kind of crazy. Just because of time, I want to get to the thing you've been dead on on, and that's curve flattening. The vanilla okay. 210 spread Absolutely. in a very John Herman way is at 100 basis points, spending the week beneath that. Give okay. us an update on what curve flattening tells you what it what it tells you is this uh it's like you said it's it's plain vanilla but you know we're we're in an environment that that kind of fits it what it tells you is this it tells you uh the economy is going to continue to run at sort of this two percent clip dumb first thing second thing is inflation is going to gradually grind its way up to about you know 1.6 1.7 percent this year 1.8 percent this year uh, that keeps the Fed in the game, although people have priced the Fed out. They're going to have to start pricing the Fed back in. Uh, and what it just tells you is that the economy doesn't have 
um, sort of the acceleration to move and break out of this this sort of um, stasis. It doesn't have the, the ability to accelerate past it. But on the other hand, uh, we're we're grinding up enough that you know the Fed. You cannot really right. price the Fed out of the game. You just can't do it. Okay, so, when, and that was the mistake people made. When we look at the curve Everything. flattening, are we? Do we presume that it will lead to an inversion? And what would that tell us about the prospect of recession? I think I think where where you get is you're getting this on the back end of the curve. You do have kind of you know you have inflation that's up but not accelerating. But you have negative rates everywhere else in the world, and those investors need to get some kind of yield, and they're coming here to get their yield. So Europeans, Japanese, Asian accounts. I'm on the phone with the central bank of Brazil in five minutes. You know they're looking to buy treasuries. So that the overseas markets, the investors are buying. So that keeps the back-end yields low. Mm-hmm. So that's what part of our thesis. The second part is the, cannot, the economy is going decent enough that you cannot price the Fed out to zero, mm-hmm. which is, you know, people were talking about just a couple of weeks ago, oh, the Fed was going to go negative rates. I mean, you just can't, you know, you may go negative rates, but it may not be until like 2020, huh. but, you know, in 2019. But like in the foreseeable future, you know, most likely uh, you may see a right. couple of rate hikes, and there's your two cents flatter. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get the escape velocity that pushes the back right. meaningfully above you. <clears throat> And, and you kind of keep yourself in this game. All right, John, and when the minute we've got left with you at the bottom of your latest research note, and you are the king of granular, yeah. you have an unemployment rate fractionally below 4% out a couple of years. Yes. And the labor participation rate goes nowhere. Right. Why is Unfortunately. that? Why I, is that? We, we unfortunately, when you compare <clears throat> the U.S., this is very unfortunate, and I wish we would get more attention on this. When you compare the U.S. to the other G7 eco- economies, we have the for the prime age males and prime age females, we have one of the lowest prime age participation rates for men and women in the United States versus the rest of the G7 economies. Only Italy is worse than us, so that's the first thing. So that gives you should give you a, you know a reality check. The other problem is we have you know when you move past the prime age is we've got baby boomers retiring and exiting the labor force at a pace that's much faster than what their natural offspring were are able to replace them at because it's just it's just it's just too slow and a replacement. So you get the participation rate for both reasons, the prime age structure and the but we're also seeing young kids yeah. not participating enough. Parents have to encourage it. I mean, um, oh, you're blaming me. I'm not gonna <laughs> you're blame, blaming me. You, I'll, tell, I'll say this. I'll, I'll say this, Tom. When you look back, you know, we had we had something similar in the early 1960s when, uh, you know, when they did that, uh, they wrote that book, The Graduate, you know, with Dustin Hoffman and so on. Right. That that was written in the early 60s. It wasn't in the end of the 60s. It was the early 60s. And what they were saying, they were seeing, they were seeing, America was so wealthy at that time that that kids were, you know. Uh, foregoing work because they their parents. Uh, this is had, this is the talk you get, Scarlett. Kind of this is the, on, but, but stop. Ultimately, people had to John Herman. Out. This is the kind of talk you get from <laughs> newly made fathers who have brand new babies and rail about teenagers and lazy college students. Hmm, John Herman, thank you. Yeah, John Herman, thank you so much and congratulations again on a newly born Herman, Scarlett Fu and Tom King. Another hour of Bloomberg surveillance. 